Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. You're not a cop, are you? I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Hey, fellow babies, welcome to a WKRP cast extra. This is a special capper for our season one episodes. We're not doing an episode today. Instead, this is our full interview with Sparky Marcus Isolio, who was a guest star on the episode Young Master Carlson. Normally on the WKRP Cast podcast, we do reviews of full episodes of the original WKRP in Cincinnati. In a regular episode, you'll find trivia, clips, drop-ins, and more. We're not doing any of those things today. Please make sure to also check out a regular episode of the podcast. Okay, that's the disclaimer. If you're still here, it means you want the extra. Let's get into it. When we found Marcus's Solio, it was through an interview. He did a fairly comprehensive sit-down with a website called Sibling Cinema in November of 2020. Marcus's appearance on WKRP as Art Jr. was a small blip in an extensive career. Unfortunately, it was not a happy career. Although he was very good and seemed like a natural and getting work, Marcus had no desire to be a child actor. He was doing it for his parents and his family. Marcus endured late nights, awful working conditions, and the scorn of adult actors. When he turned 18, he couldn't get out of the business or away from his parents fast enough. We told Marcus we only wanted to talk about WKRP. No need to bring up those other less-than-pleasant memories of his youth. Here's the thing. Marcus is a great guy. He's hilarious, and he tells a great story. We sat down to Zoom on a Saturday afternoon. We really hit it off, and Marcus started bouncing around to other stories from his career. Awesome stories. So many of those great stories did not fit into the podcast about the episode. So after getting permission from Marcus, we decided you guys just had to hear these things. This was not intended as a formal interview, but it came out great. It is only lightly edited for time. This is our sit-down with Sparky Marcus Asolio, guest star of Young Master Carlson on WKRP. Thanks so much for talking to us. Um, hate to be bothering you out of the blue. Just I'm a, I'm sure you opened your LinkedIn and thought, oh, great, somebody tracking me down. No, 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 no. And yeah, no, not at all. And this happens more infrequently than you think, so it, it's not a bother. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, we've we've got a few questions written out that we want to talk uh, that we want to ask you just so we don't forget things we want to ask. Okay. But at any yeah, time, perfect. if we ask you anything that you know it makes you remember something or you know it brings something up, throw it in. You know whatever whatever we okay. want to do. Uh, also, we want yeah, you uh, we want you to know we definitely have read the siblings article that you did last November. <laughs> and Correct. Ha- have really been through it a couple of times, know all the details, but we are going to ask you things that you said in that article because we need you saying them on audio so we can put them in the podcast. Uh, it's it's a lot it's a lot more powerful if you say it than if we go in an article last November, Marcus said. You know? <laughs> yeah. and also, no, no, we, I understand. If we ask anything that you would rather not answer or feel uncomfortable answering, you know, that's cool too. Yeah, just say no. I'd rather not talk about that. That's yeah, fine. That's I'll fine. let you know. The only reason I'm even hesitant is my 900-year-old father is still alive. 
Oh. And my mom died. From, and he wasn't, he was the kind of, I mean, I'm Maybe not saying he Maybe we should be interviewing him. 900. Not if you want the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that's the thing too. I, you know, we definitely got this sense from that article. You didn't have a great childhood and it was not the, the whole experience of being an actor as a kid was not a good thing for you. And we definitely get that and really don't want to go into any of that because I'm sure that's no fun for you to talk about. Uh, what we're doing is a podcast about WKRP. So really all we want to know about is WKRP. We're not going to, not going to take you through that that tour of the other crap that you had going on there. So now we are, Oh, Oh, and just to confirm when you were on WKRP, you were 11, right? I'm trying to remember. I remember being in fourth grade. Now, my birthday is in December, so that puts me a year older than everyone else. You know, even though I was born in December 67, most of my classmates were born in 68. Um, And I'm trying to remember. I want to say that was done in 1978, and I was probably 10. Oh, in 78? Uh-huh. I, but then again, I don't even know when the series was playing. What years was it on? Because wasn't I nope. in the first season? 78 through 82. 78 through 82. And, and we we are doing, it. it's kind of weird. As we've gotten into this, we've started, we're looking at crazy details that nobody ever looks at, you know, in, in a, a series. And we're kind of unearthing these weird little things that have gone on throughout this first season. Some shows that they, mm-hmm. shot, they shot early on didn't play until like the end of the year. And it looks like from yours, you've got one scene in the bullpen where you're sitting there mm-hmm. with Frank with Frank Bonner. The bullpen yeah. didn't show up until January of 79. It was an add-in. They were forced on hiatus over that winter uh, for about two months. They were taken off the air. They did a bunch of retrofitting and reconning and working on it and, and, and putting it putting it back together. And one of the things they added was that bullpen. So it probably was after the first of the year when oh, they were 79. We're, we're guessing, yeah. And the last the very last show they shot in 79 would have been on March 9th. So probably some there January, February, or early March would have been where they shot this one, we think. But but again, like we say, all of that stuff. That, that's why we're asking you. Do you remember when this happened? Yeah, <laughs> I missed when the bullpen showed up. It's... Yeah, I missed almost my entire fifth grade year working at Paramount on the Bad News Bears series, and I did WKRP before that. So I'm still going to say it was not 78 or 79. Okay, because by 79, by the end of seven, by well, maybe by March of 79, I was back in school, um, and then summer and then 79 80 80s when i graduated from sixth grade um i man i wish i could put it together for you i just can't it's, well, it's been so long and everything <laughs> you, were you know <laughs> no that isn't even it i mean trust me being little is one thing if you ever saw and i've never i've only seen very very little of my work it's just not my thing i just you know, I pick it apart. I'm just, it's not what I want to do. Well, but, you, you know, awesome. when I was on. In KRP, <laughs> you were awesome. You guys are, you guys are too kind. Um, when I was on um, uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, the sermon stuff I was memorizing were three and four pages long on a script. <sighs> so as far as being able to remember things, unfortunately, that's something that's a blessing and a curse. I, unfortunately, my memory goes back a long way, <laughs> ah. but I get a little bit confused. I will say when it comes to dates, because I remember them in sequence and not necessarily by date. And you had a lot going on there. You were busy. <laughs> there was a period of time. Yeah. There was a period of time where I was working a lot 
And, you know, I mean, you know, like, I think it was after I got married, it must've been a good 20 years ago, maybe where I first started getting those social security statements and say, you paid this much in this year and you earned this much. So you get this much when you turn this age, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Right now they're, they're electronic, but back in the day we got them on paper. I didn't realize how much money I made. I had no idea. I, my allowance was five bucks a week. I went up and down the street with a bucket of water and soap washing people's cars for $5. That's what I did. And as soon as I turned 16, I got a job parking cars at the Troubadour in Hollywood again for five bucks an hour. And then after that, I worked at the laundry, the, the clothing mart in downtown LA on commission. I didn't get in my hand almost any of the cash that I earned. I had side jobs. So like I was doing voices at Hanna-Barbera from about 1980, to 1985. And I would haul ass after school, after I had my license, I'd haul ass to North Hollywood, um, record several shows and then haul ass to Glendale and park cars until midnight. Wow. <laughs> and then go to school at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. That oh, was my life. Wow. Actually, when you, when you carve it all up, I did anything I could do to not be home. I tried to stay out of the house. It was better. I never saw my parents awake for periods of time, you know? Oh man. So wow. that was my gig. So I and, didn't and now, and so you're, I just, started, you're just now finding out how much you really made then. It's been, you know, it's been a while because I've known my dad lived with me for until uh, July of this year. He lived with me for the last 11 years. So it was before he moved in. I was well aware of the circumstances of what went on when I was young by the time he moved in. And I went through this whole thing, you know, philosophically in my head after my mom died, because my dad can't take care of himself. Um, you know, is it my problem or their problem? If I'm going to invite him to live in my house, which I was doing, then I need to, it's done. It's buried. It's, I can't let him move in and then be like, you were an asshole most of my child life, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's not fair to him. Yeah, right, it wouldn't be right. fair. And, and ang- I'm a Sagittarius, so anger burns me like all the time. So it's like what keeps me warm at night. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, um, I knew, I knew what, we, what, the, what the skinny was before he moved in. So it's been a good, you know, 15 years since my wife and I sat down and looked at it and I'm like, holy shit. And when I penned it out, I'm like, that was over 800 grand over 13 years and it's gone. I mean, wow. gone, gone wow. history, like nothing to show for it. Gone, you know, oh, um, man, when you're, when I was working, the, the child labor laws were different. They were a lot less strict and you didn't have to have that mandatory savings account that they make unless you were in an episode, unless you were regular on an episodic television series that was not a cartoon. Okay. So if you look at my career, I've had several one season wonders um, and my parents went to court. I remember going to court as an eight-year-old going, yes, your honor. Um, they actually had the amount of money reduced by half. <laughs> so instead of 10% wow. of my gross revenue that was supposed to be in a protected uh, savings account until I was 18, it was only five. So when I turned 18 and broke the trust and looked to see how much dough was in there, I had $30,000 and that paid essentially for the first three years of college. Man. <laughs> But but you're looking at that you're looking at knowing that's one twentieth of what you earned. Yeah, but you know 5%. what? Yeah, 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 exactly. But I also go to the fact that I considered it then, and I consider it now, almost when I'm in a good mood. Um, family money. We was PWT from East LA, really, until I started working, and the family got better because I was able to contribute. Well, that's yeah. kind of how I. And that's, and that's how I kind of. Say it. Well, and that's a positive label to put on that time period. I, I think that's a good thing to pull out of it is look at the positive and yeah. Yeah. You helped the yeah, family my, along. I was the youngest. So. 
I was the youngest of four. My oldest sister was 10 years older than me. My brother and sister were seven years older than me. Um, they all had, well, my middle sister and my brother had individual issues that, you know, there are very few problems that money can't solve. <laughs> yeah. And my parents <laughs> had the resources to do that. And before my mom died, we had, we went, the one time we had a discussion that we were both very honest about. And I just said, you know, why, why did you do this? And she goes, we needed the money, Spark. We needed the money. That's why we did it. So sorry. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, at and, least to get it out there and go, okay, there, there it is. Now I know I've heard it from the horse's mouth, you know, done. Well, I noticed you said that your mom called you Spark. We were wondering mm-hmm. about Sparky. How did you get that, name, <laughs> that nickname? Okay, or... this is, this is, when I, now they call them auditions, but back in the day, we called them interviews. When I went on interviews, you go in, you hand them a, a head sheet, a headshot, your resume, you talk a little bit, and then you do, you get into whatever the interview's about. The number one question casting people asked me was, where did the name Sparky come from? So <laughs> when I, okay, they roll back, I don't know how old you guys are, but roll back to 1967 in December when my mom was pregnant. Um, my dad is a real wuss when it comes to blood, guts, health stuff. I mean, somebody had a cold, he was like, he couldn't handle it. You know what I mean? And if there was <laughs> blood involved, he generally passed out. So my mom goes, okay, it's time, you know? And he couldn't drive to the hospital. Uh, so he rode shotgun while my mom drove to um, Hollywood <laughs> oh, Presbyterian. Wow. Seriously, yeah. So, okay, now picture this. My dad was a typical guy in the black suit with the skinny tie and the big, thick black glasses, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he was a five-pack-a-day man back then. So, wow. you know, hospitals, even, yeah, most hospitals I worked at when I first started in the 80s had smoking areas. You can go into this room because the smoke knows to stay in that room. and doesn't yeah. know to yeah. go anywhere else. I remember those <laughs> yeah. days. I was born in okay, 1960, right? so. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. So, my dad, when my mom rolled into the hospital, she went one way, my dad went another. Because back in then, it was like, here's your perfectly clean little baby. Um, yeah. So they were, they apparently, there was a long discussion over what they were going to name me. And my father wanted me to be Marcus Aurelius Asolio. And then at some point, it was Quentin Asolio or something at that point. And my mom was, at, I guess by the time, you know, you, you, I remember when my wife was pregnant, you know, you reached that 40th week, you're like, I'm done. I don't really care what happens. Just get this baby out of me. And, you know, I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. So my mom goes rolling off to the, and I was a C-section. My mom goes rolling off to the OR. Doctor pulls me out. And when the nurse handed me to my mother, she said, not here's your little baby. Or here's your little bundle of joy. She said, here's your little Sparky. So my mom oh. assumed, my mom assumed that that was the name my dad chose for me. So for the first three days, because you got five days in the hospital for a C-section back then, um, they, that's all they called me was Sparky. My dad said he walked into the, the recovery room where my mom was, and she goes, did you see Sparky? And he goes, yes, I saw Sparky. He's a darling little baby. Um, and that's where it came from until they realized my mother said after I came home was when they realized what had happened. So it was a nurse. It was a nurse. Just Here's a nurse. Wow. Wow. And it was an OB nurse, yeah. Now, we we kind of figured, you know, looking at this and then finding your real name that, okay, this was something mm-hmm. that they decided on for him to be a child nope. actor. And it this nope. was your nickname. This was you. That was, yeah, that was me. I, that is the only name the I first, re- For the first three days. I was, I, yeah, well, I didn't actually hear my real name until I was in first grade. Because <laughs> I remember I, I was looking around, you know, they had your name, your first name, or Marcus I, you know, giant letters on the desk. You're supposed to find them. Right. I was looking everywhere for Sparky. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> no one told me. Yeah. 
So by the time I by the time I figured it all out, it dawned on me or at that point that when my mom was mad, she called me Marcus. Marcus, you know, and uh, everything was cool as long as she called me Sparky. And, and you're <laughs> looking around, going, "Where's Marcus? Who's Marcus? What are you? Who are you talking exactly. to?" <laughs> that you know, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's absolutely true. Wow. So anybody who knew me before I got out of elementary school still calls me that. <laughs> Oh, uh, wow. Well, yeah. we, you know, we were going to ask you, how, you know, how, how do you feel about being called Sparky now? Uh, also, some, did I ask you this? How much do you want us to keep your actual last name and where you are now kind of minimized? I, you know what? It's totally internet all over the place. So I don't really care. You know, okay. I posted a picture on, I posted a picture on Facebook. I work in healthcare, I work in hospitals and I just got my second COVID vaccine. So they gave us this card that says, you know, in case you have to prove it, here you go, you know? Yeah, um, I, I posted it on Facebook. Things. Yeah. So I posted it on Facebook and it's got my phone number on it. And one of my ex oh. child actor friends was like, Oh my God, Spark, you got your phone number on the internet. I'm like, it's already on the internet. Okay. <laughs> I don't really care. Now, I've got not, nothing to hide. It's not that on the internet. We had to do a little searching to find you. Uh, <laughs> if I could find it, it can be found. <laughs> yeah. I was a disaster preparedness guy for the hospital for like 15 years. And I had to get a ham radio license and the FCC posts everything. So oh, my entire yeah. address, phone number, middle initial, the whole damn thing, my, my wow. uh, uh, FCC license and everything <laughs> is all on the FCC website. So I don't really care at this point. I got off a landline two or three years ago and I only use my cell phone. If I don't want to answer it, I don't answer it. Yeah, I don't really care. We're kind of the same way. We we ditched the landline a long time ago. So. Yeah, I just found you on Facebook. Uh, Donna, Donna found a picture of it. <laughs> you're standing next to some shirt that says "Don't fuck with the cook." <laughs> yeah, I was. I, know. I was in New Orleans in 2016 with my wife, my kid, and one of our best friends. Greatest trip ever. And as soon as I saw that, if you look, the one above says "Don't fuck with the cook," and the one below it says "Kiss the cook." And, or, and, and a buddy like, like have like, sex with the cook or oh, something. Yeah, it's like yeah. have sex know, with right? the cook. <laughs> Yeah, and the, my buddy's well, like, "Those are two conflicting things." Yeah, I know. Conflicting <laughs> things. Yeah. <laughs> so feel free to send me a friend request if you want to. Oh, okay. Oh, All right. Okay. We're sure. So, hey, um, we're curious. How did you hear about now? You so you're already kind of out there in the pool of actors. You're working. You're you're hitting interviews. How did you hear mm -hmm. about the role on KRP? And you know what what was the process to get there? Okay. There's only one legit way to get a job. Uh, even now. I mean, I don't really know what the process is now, but it can't be that much different. You got to get a good agent. And I will tell you at that time, I had the best, best kids agent in Hollywood. Her name was Mary Grady. Um, her children were Don Grady from my three sons and Lonnie O Grady from eight is enough. Oh, um, okay. She had been in the industry a million years. She, I mean, I thought she was old when I was like eight, you know, and um, she, uh, she was the best, the best agent there was and you know people would call the casting agents call her you know or all the agents and go we need a kid that looks this and this between this and this with this and this quality and she plucks everybody out of her stable and says you got an interview at three o'clock tomorrow be there it was not unusual for me to hit three to five interviews a day after school so my mom was hauling ass in the car and all car all over hollywood trying to hit these interviews because you may do 100 interviews and get one job yeah. So is it that age? Is it based most more on looks than acting talent? Or <laughs> let what? me tell you, I'm going to give I'm going to give you my lowdown on child actors of the 70s and early 80s. Okay. Okay. It didn't matter. Yeah. It, you, you had to have the look, whatever look they wanted. You needed to look like whoever the adult actors were, if that was the case. You needed to look like a bully, if that was the case. You needed to look like a nerd, if that was the case. 
I don't think they really gave crap one about what you other than that, as long as you did three things, you showed up on time, you knew your lines and you shut the hell up. That's all they want you to do. They don't even want to acknowledge you unless it's time for you to work. You know, um, adult actors, many of them don't like working with children. I remember I was working on a set and the guy goes, child wrangler. <laughs> to get the child wrangler to come yeah, take the kid away because I, you know you work with a horse and the horse is acting out you go horse wrangler you work with a dog and the dog is acting out a dog yeah. wrangler yeah I remember hearing child wrangler and even in my eight year old self I'm like fuck you you know I'm just doing my thing <laughs> but it's serious it's so like, it's like I'm you're just not doing really my a thing, person man. You're, you're not really a person no. you're, come get this thing Strictly, we're done with them it was <laughs> It was window dressing. It really was. And I mean, hit your mark, know your lines, shut up, show up on time. If you could do those three things, you could work in Hollywood because there's enough kids that have the look and even have the talent, but they didn't show up on time because the parents were flakes. They didn't know their lines because, you know, parents don't know what the hell they're doing anyway, but for the most part. And um, kids didn't shut up because I have seen, I can't tell you how many kids I worked with that got replaced mid project because they were loudmouth, wouldn't follow direction. Their mom kept pushing people out of the way going, honey needs to be in the front. He needs to be in the front. Uh, I mean, that whole Hollywood mother thing is real. It's no, absolutely yes. real. My mom wasn't that type of person. She could do that snap with your finger, you know, like that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I could hear it across the soundstage. And she said, if she ever heard my name said twice, she would snap her finger. So she letting me know that she was on to me and we might have a problem on the way home. Mm. So I knew when, you know, the eyes of, of discipline were looking at me and when I needed to shape up. Now you seem very mature, just watching you in the episode. Well, it's very professional, very, for very professional, age. very mature. I mean, you make eye contact, you turn, you block, you're doing great stuff. And, and it looked like there's a lot of maturity there belying an 11-year-old. Do you think that came about because of your experiences and having to go through those cattle calls and being treated you know, like that? Or was that something you just kind of naturally had and it helped you to be successful? One thing that helped is my mother graduated from the Pasadena Playhouse School of Performing Arts. And if you're ever familiar with that school, it existed until like, I want to say the late 70s, early 80s. Um, they still have a functional playhouse there. Um, graduates are people like Dustin Hoffman and Ruth Buzzy. Those are my mom's classmates. So she called herself an educated dialogue coach. And it's funny because since she died, I found pictures of her productions that my dad had squirreled away that I didn't even know existed from back in, you know, 1956, 55, from around there when she was standing in the footlights and being the lead actress kind of thing. So my mom got me very well prepared as far as dialogue and nuance and eye contact, what you're talking about, but all that other stuff you're talking about, uh, we call it business. Like when you do stuff with your hands or you eat a sandwich during a scene or something like that, anything that is not dialogue related that you're animated in doing is called business. So the business and the blocking came from the director. And like I said, if you follow directions, you work in Hollywood. At the end you were, um, when you did this, you you have a scene with Lonnie Anderson where you like come on to her and you're like, oh, yeah. Now, were you know, really right? into girls at that age or was that all acting? Were you like, oh, um, gr- you know, girl crazy? No, I, I, w- <laughs> I would say I identified as a boy very early on. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> That's a good way to um, put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I, she, that woman could raise the dead. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't that she had that, you know, typical blonde, gorgeous thing. She was actually nice. And she was kind to me. And I actually worked with her before. Uh, she and I did an episode. Several people. We've heard that from several um, people that we've interviewed. We we just talked to Lori Openden, who was the mother. There's an episode where the baby is left at the station. Yeah. Uh-huh. Johnny, and it, he's two months old. The baby is. We found him. He's 42. He lives in Arizona. Yeah. But we we well, interviewed his mom. Because he, he said he didn't remember anything. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah, he didn't remember anything. <laughs> right. But, his space when he was on the set. She said his little space that they had for him when he was on the set was in Lonnie Anderson's dressing room. And she said, Lonnie was so sweet and so wonderful and so into babies, you know? So she was nuts oh, about this kid. It, yeah. I worked with her on an episode of the Bob Newhart show where uh, I only watched the show in college when everyone drank, when they said, Hey Bob, um, uh, when yes, let's see. Uh, there was a Carlson was Bob Newhart's friend, and Carlson was getting sued for paternity, and the woman was Lonnie Anderson, and I was supposed to be their child. Okay, side side memory. Okay, you want to talk about things that go through my head? You know. Okay, so I'm on that set, right? <laughs> it was 1976, maybe. It might have been even early, late 1975, early 1976. So I'm sitting there. I I identified early on that I related more to the to the crew than the cast. So I'd rather go talk to the sound guy and the camera guys while during lunch and downtime and stuff, instead of hanging around talking about, you know, the movie of the week that was on last night that everyone was just smashing. In. You know what I mean? It was, wasn't my thing. So I'm sitting there talking with sound guys and here comes this guy. We're on the, we're on the lot of 20th century Fox. That's where they filmed the Bob Newhart show. So this guy walks in pompadour. I'm looking at him. Unremarkable. Just another adult, you know, that comes through the set. I don't know who the hell the guy is. So he starts talking to the sound guy that I was talking to. So we're just sitting there and he looks at me and goes, Hey kid, how old are you? And I said, something like nine or something. I don't remember. And he goes, I'll be right back. I got something for you. So he comes back about 15 minutes later. He hands me a t-shirt and a poster. And I'm like, what is this? And he goes, movies coming out next year. You're going to love it. Freaking star Wars. He gave, that was George fucking Lucas. He gave me a uh, star Wars movie poster, like the first generation kind and a t-shirt that I still have. And I have pictures of my kid wearing when he was that age. Um, uh, that I've never seen anywhere else ever. And wow. I'm a Star Wars geek as, I mean, I've seen the movie 500 times at least. Oh, you know? I'm, um, I'm huge. I'm huge. I'm huge. Yeah, definitely. Right. I'm, I'm with so you. <laughs> I, that happened on the set of Bob Newhart. So, I, you know, I'm trolling eBay all the time because I'm looking for pictures. I've got nothing, right? My, when I left home, my parents were so pissed off at me. When I went to college, they basically emptied my room into a dumpster and that was it. All of my anything, all of my high school yearbooks, all that stuff, gone, 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 right? Oh. They were that pissed off. So I have, I only have very few pictures of like set stills and stuff. So I found a set still from Bob Newhart and we're standing in front of a mocked up movie theater and in the window, in the, in the coming soon movie thing is a, is the poster from Star Wars. Blew my mind. <laughs> oh, wow. So he was dry, he so, was just cruising around doing promotion for the yeah, movie right. and handed out. And they stuff. plugged it on the show. And oh, they plugged it on the show. Cool. Well, yeah, it's, I know, it's, I know. it's co-branding between the two properties. He's a 20th century. Right. You know, he's shooting for Lucasfilm was a 20th century Fox owned property. Right. Wow. Yeah, that yeah, is yeah, cool. That. <laughs> I know. I know. So 
Yeah, that was my Lonnie Anderson slash uh, 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 Steven Sp- no uh, George Lucas story. Man. That has nothing to do with why you're calling me. Oh, uh, but no, that's <laughs> but that stuff is just this. There, this is what we were saying. We if like you think of anything, backstories. if you think of yeah. anything, throw it in. That is yeah. awesome. Now, uh, now I know, I know from the siblings article, you did say you were a fan of KRP, but we got to ask that question. So, were you a fan of WKRP when you got this part, or did you have to play catch up? No, everybody was. Everybody was, even the kids in my class, everybody watched it because it was freaking hysterical. Um, one thing that was easy to pick up day one, hour one, was the cast had a symbiotic relationship. I mean, those guys were all, I don't know, you walk into it, you walk into a set and you can tell if there's division, like this star doesn't like that star and that guy doesn't work well with that guy or everybody hates the director or whatever it is. You can sense it. It's just like you can smell a skunk in the room. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what I remember going onto the set there, and it was like I can imagine what 1969 Love Fest must have been like because everybody really worked well together. Everyone got along. Everybody, you know, they played off each other in a good way, you know, not in a negative way, in a very positive way. Um, and it was really easy, and they made me feel really welcome, which was very unusual for a kid, especially when you're the only kid on the set because that makes it easier to ignore, right? Because it's just like, you know, Go put the go put the child over there for right now. Yeah, get him out of my way. Um, when there's ten of you, it's a whole different story. Um, they were very welcoming. I felt comfortable from day one. Um, they were. There was a scene in there with Tim Reed talking about sensitive racial overtones. How does that sound? Yeah. Um, well, we've we've got a whole question directed towards that. Okay. A couple of questions directed okay. towards that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't but, have but a go lot ahead. of specific. Go ahead. I don't have a lot of specific memories about, I'm not even really sure I understand the nuances of what I was doing because that wasn't the house that I grew up in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I remember Tim just being really gracious about that whole thing. And it was like, you know, it's all cool, man. You know, it's just, just part of the job. Let's go. It's all good. And I was like, wow, this is a great place to work. I mean, can you write me in please? I'm kind of digging this, you know? (laughs) Um, yeah unfortunately that didn't happen i would have been happy as a clam there those guys were awesome uh did you did you say i i think i wrote you a note about a friend of ours rick hall that anytime he'd get the call to seinfeld he had this same Mm -hmm. attitude he wanted to be on that set as often as he could he said it was so much fun so creative everybody's having a good time it sounds like same energy happening here that that is cool it was and i gotta tell you howard hessman there's guys on that show were freaking hysterical, all of them. <laughs> Howard Hesman is one of the funniest men I've ever seen. I could just listen to that guy go all day long. He's awesome, hilarious. Um, Gordon Jump, that guy has the whole, how do you put it, that whole like shy guy that is going to absolutely stun you with zingers kind of thing. He's got that going in spades. Oh, yeah. um, and I can't remember names as well as I used to, but the guy who played Les and the guy who played ha- uh, Howard uh, was it Howard? Richard well, Sanders. Frank, Frank Bonner uh, was yeah, Richard, was Herb. Richard Sanders, yeah. Herb, Herb Tarlake. Those two guys watching them play off each other was almost, and I could be totally wrong because I was young. It was almost just like watching two old buddies just bounce off each other on stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, just, they're they're like little back and forth, and and that was written in the script was very similar to the back and forth that was off camera. Those guys really enjoy each other. They seem to really enjoy it. We've actually drawn the comparison a couple of times with some of their bits between like classic Laurel and Hardy stuff. They just have that Mm -hmm. timing and that they're just so quick off of each other. They don't crack a smile. They don't break at all. They're just watching them. Alan came up with a nickname for Les and Herb. He calls them Lurb. Yeah, they're Lurb because they are are one entity. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it, and it, it seemed that way when you were there too. And I don't know if the director that directed that particular episode that I was in was a regular director for those guys, uh, but everybody. Was, yeah, it was Will McKenzie, and Will has an actor's background. And actually, the show uh, that we just finished work on was also directed by Will McKenzie, and Tom Chehawk had written it. So we were talking to Tom about Will. He'd also worked with Rod Daniels, who was the most prolific director in WKRP. He did like 24 episodes. And he said between oh, wow. Rod and Will, he said Will was not technical at all. But Will came from an acting background, so he loved actors. And he was really big on getting people to improv and getting people to play around. So that's who directed your show was Will. And they said mm. he was really an actor's director. So that might have been part of it, getting that feeling you mm -hmm. were getting. I just remember him being totally cool. And like I said, that was an unusual thing back then. You know, sometimes you had directors and actors that were into child welfare. I remember doing, a, I did a movie with Richard Whitmark. I think they called The Last Day. And it was about the last ride of the Dalton gang. And we were playing, we were, we were in the Western land that they had at Paramount. I'm allergic to everything Western. I'm allergic to hay, I'm allergic to alfalfa, I'm allergic to horses. I'm allergic to everything, okay? So it's supposed to be, there were supposed to be nighttime. So they had all the, the dark stuff on. It was wintertime when we filled it. So it was freaking cold. I'm supposed to be in a nightgown. They're making me do all this stuff and I could hardly breathe or talk. And Barbara Rush was like, okay, stop. Everybody stop. We're taking a break. Take care of the kid. Bring in a heater for God's sake. You know, Yeah. that, that didn't happen very often, but it, it happened. It just didn't happen very often. In, in this episode of, of KRP, you had a ton of lines. And you had to cry too. That's, yeah. That seemed like a very challenging role. Had you ever done anything well, like that to this point in your career? Yeah. For an 11-year-old, it was very involved. Yeah. For an um, I did a couple of after-school specials, and one of them was particularly emotional. And my, one of my coworkers was Melissa Sue Anderson. It was supposed to be this mutual friend we had died. They were supposed to, you know, the things were only like 30 minutes. We were talking 20 minutes on film. And I swear it took us an entire afternoon to film this one scene because she and I kept bawling through the whole thing, you know, <laughs> getting like, like, un, you know, uh, unintelligible at some point. And when you're with somebody and you're in the moment, I can I don't know how to explain this. And especially when you put yourself in front of a live audience and you feel the energy, I loved live shows because I could feel it, you know, it's visceral. I don't know how else to put it. Um, when you're in the moment and the audience is quiet and you know they're listening to everything you're saying because they're in it with you, um, I didn't have a hard time being emotional. I mean, like I said, I'm a Sagittarius. I feel, you know, I have, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not one of those person. I'm one of those people who can turn stuff off. I'm just like, yeah, I cry at movies. That's me. You know, <laughs> sorry, but when it's when it's when I'm touched, yeah, I, I get emotional. But and making Gordon that, making was, that connection with Gordon was that was cake, what really. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Melissa like Sue I said, Anderson. Melissa Sue Anderson. Yeah. Little House on the Prairie, right? She was. Yeah. Yeah. We did this. Uh, it was called Very Good Friends, but they changed the name, I think, to Beat the Turtle Drum. And it's it was about a girl and her sister and a younger girl falls out of a tree and dies and hmm. her best friends dealing with death and loss and all that stuff. It was depressing. I did like four after school specials. Guy, the producer Martin Tossi liked me. So I, I worked a lot for him. If you'd have been like 20 years older, you'd probably yeah, still be just doing this story. job, wouldn't you? You, 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 you know, okay. have done it, but I got to tell you, I don't know. 
I don't know, because I found where I belonged when I was 19. I uh, got a job working as an aide in a hospital doing physical therapy. And four years later, I had my license and I've never looked back. It's uh-huh. just where I belong. And then I tried work in private practice. I tried being with all the pretty people. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I broke a nail. It's like, it's whatever. Um, <laughs> I like them. <laughs> I like them bleeding and screaming. And I think I'm going to die. This is it. And the crappy institutional coffee. That's what I like. I love going to work and having to be that way. <laughs> well, a lot Seriously. of people never find that. So yeah, that's, that's good. Congratulations I know. on that. That's amazing. I know. I know too many people who are in their forties and still just don't know where they belong. And I'll even, I'll even take that up a notch at the, at the risk of getting backlash from other ex-child actors. I was not that guy that peaked when I was nine. You know, I wasn't in a, I wasn't a bit part in a small, in a movie that was popular that I had 90 seconds of screen time. And that defined who I was as a person. Cause there, I'm telling you guys, my age, that worked back then. Those are them. Those are some of those guys. And it blows my mind. It's like, your entire income, other than being on disability for your anxiety or whatever the hell it is, is going to autograph shows and signing autographs on pictures that you bootlegged um, from a movie from 1978. Really? You know? And that's just not my gig. Um, I will tell you this. My parents, my whole family, my, my mom's side and my dad's side, very strong work ethic. What have you done today? What is your contribution you know, what are you doing? I've never been that guy that could just be like, I don't know where, you know, dinner's coming tomorrow. I just don't know. It'll work itself out. Mm-hmm. You know, I like my paychecks every two weeks instead of, you know, there's a, there's a degree of depression. You know, the one thing, the one silver lining I might put to that is there's a degree of depression to going on hundred interviews and not getting a job. You know, I'm yeah. good. They want me. I'm good. They want me. And then next year they don't even know your name anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you learn rejection and how to, how to deal with it. And how to well, how, how to persevere and continue. Well, I will say part of that's true. Um, you learn about rejection, but not necessarily how to deal with it. And that's what happens. You get these guys that are used to, you know, the doors opening for you when you walk in a place to, you know, you got to go in the back door because no one wants to see you again. And after a while, you know, it's like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And my mom was like, smart. We really need this job. You've got to go in there. You've got to nail it because we really need it. You know, we're short on cash. We've got to do it. I had no idea. We had plenty of money. My dad was working full time. There was, it, it was never like that. It was never an issue that way. But I was convinced that, you know, we were Poe and that's what I had to do. And that would motivate you to go in there and really, really nail it. Wow. And that is so much to put I, on a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they all thought I could handle it. You know, when I did. Oh, you, you obviously, yeah, you obviously did. Um, I mean, that's, yeah. that, that just says a lot about who you were at that time. And how, and, and like, I think I mentioned in one of the things, congratulations to you for finding this safe space in your life and for getting through it without crashing a car, winding up in jail. Right. You know, right. Drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, let me put it this way. I just never got caught. <laughs> <with some of those. laughs> but I, I think, you know, the big, the big uh, eye opener for me, was when my son started turning certain benchmark ages. And then, you know, I learned at a young age how to put stuff in a box. Because, like, for example, I was on the, the set of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. I was seven years old. That was my first series. I beat out older kids. I have no idea why. Rip Taylor thought I was cool. I think that was why we had a – I mean, I remember going to the interview, and we just laughed our asses off. Um, so I don't know what I was doing because I can't really remember, but whatever it was, it was bad – and my mom let me have it in the dressing room, right? Well, I had a mic on. So the sound guy heard everything. Ooh. Wow. Okay? 
So, yeah. So I noticed after that, that everybody started treating me really nice. <laughs> you know, everybody was cool to me after that. So it kind of all depends, you know, I don't know, uh, where the motivation comes from, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now the, the WKRP, we, it, it was basically a week, right? How yeah. many yeah, you days read. were you there? And at what point did you get on the set? Were you there for the table read or were you there for the first time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was there for the table read. That's Monday. They have something called a rehearsal hall. Cause let's say for example, the episode is going to have a different set. The set builders need time to build it. You'd be surprised what they can crank out in a day. Really? Um, we would generally be in the rehearsal hall for two days and somebody at some point had taped out in different colors the outline of the sets so you can we could start blocking and everybody had a different color tape as far as this is your block versus my block your mark versus my mark you know i remember i was when i did bad news bears my color was green you know i remember that so when you have six kids all around you got all this different color tape you got to know where your tape is you know what i mean mm -hmm. so you do the table read the first day you know talk about stuff rewrites 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 happen all the time not so much I remember with that particular one, but in any other thing that I did, you know, here and they, they do it in different colored paper and they replace page for page. So it's like you flip through the final script. It has 20 different colored pages in it. And, you know, you're supposed to take out the old page and put in the new page because everyone's everything's got those big three inch brass, two pronged pinch right, things. You yeah, know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. That go through four inches of script sometimes. Um, uh, you get those. And then by Wednesday, you're on the stage in costume. Um, Thursday is final run through and then you record Friday and recording. We had to get there about two for like four 30 or I, I think it was a, maybe a five or six o'clock recording. Yeah, Tom said remember. there would, there would be two, Tom was saying there would be two on a Friday evening at five and at eight would be the two. Recordings. I don't recall that. Did, oh, did, did, we do it did you do both? Did you do both? They do two of them. Yeah. Then I did. Yeah, I did. And the reason I say that is because when you're under 18 and you're working a live show like that, they have to get special permission from the uh, school superintendent of wherever you're filming, because I was working till 11 o'clock. We didn't get done until 11 o'clock and then it's out of wardrobe, get out of makeup and go home. So I remember, you know, going home at 1130 when I did that stuff. Yeah. On a, on a Friday night. And then, yeah. Yeah. On a Friday night. Yeah. All right. Hey, the food was good. I'll tell you that. Oh, was it? <laughs> Yeah, food was jamming, you know? All right, let's 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 talk wardrobe. That is okay. an amazing uniform you are wearing. Was that custom made? <laughs> How long did you have to... Um, okay, I don't know who it was. <clears throat> there was somebody on the crew, and I want to say it was the cameraman or the sound guy, who went to military school. And so they mocked up, I think the sleeves weren't on yet. I think it was just the, the vest part, the, the, the jacket part without the sleeves. And he's like, okay, you need to put stuff here, stuff there, stripe over here, um, grab the hat. Yeah, you need the, the, he called them scrambled eggs on the bill. You got to put scrambled eggs on there and this and that and all this. So they were constantly updating it until the end, I would say Thursday morning, end of the day, Wednesday. And um, when rehearsing it, there's that part where Tim Reed picks me up by the epaulets, the, the collar, yes. whatever, not the epaulets, I guess the collar, the, the, collar, the well, jacket. It, in the final, he grabs your arms. That your upper arms. And okay. That's yeah. why. That's why. The epaulets kept, the, the thing he grabbed me by kept tearing up. He grabbed by the, the collar of the jacket and lifted me up. And a couple of times they tore out during rehearsal. And we'd laugh our asses off when that happened because they're like, pick me up. And he's got all, he's got that stink face, you know, all serious. And he goes, mm -hmm. and I fell out of screen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I remember that happening. That was funny. Now, uh, now how- Gary Sandys was cool too. Oh, talk about Gary. Talk about we we are trying. We're talking um, right now to Gary's girlfriend, and we're trying to get an interview with Gary. But everybody we've talked uh, to said Gary is a prince. He worked well with me. I had no problemos. Um, I remember there was that. This is how this is how my memory works. I remember doing that scene with him where I'm like, "Why aren't you at your post? Why aren't you there? Could something happen? Something could happen, couldn't it? We'll get a move on, soldier, kind of thing." And I remember the way he was playing back to me. He cracked me up. I kept, you know, the first couple of days you do it, the jokes are still funny. Now, that, that one was, was Howard, Howard Hessman. Hessman. That's with Howard Hessman. He was one of the DJs. He was on the air at the time. The yeah, oh, it was? Place. It was Howard. That oh, was, that I thought interchange. it was Gary Sandy. No, with Gary, you, rec- you recognize Gary as being Gordon's five-star general. You, you salute oh, him. Oh, yeah, okay. And you say, oh, well, he's, I remember that. You know, he, and you give him all kinds of deference. When uh, Johnny walks okay. in, Art introduces him to you. He says, one of our DJs. And you put your hands behind your back. You start pacing around him and going, why aren't you at your post, sir? And he goes, well, I got yeah. a long record on. Couldn't the record player stop? Couldn't it skip? Couldn't something go wrong? You just, <laughs> yeah. you're nailing. You're right into it. Okay. Well, shave, obviously, shave and get a haircut or something. It's like- <laughs> <laughs> obviously, that was why that I still remember that being so damn funny because it was him. Okay. All this time I thought I was getting Sandy, but you're right. It was Howard Hesman. The dude, I'm just telling you, the guy, like, he had comedy aftershave or something. It was like, you walk by him and just start laughing. You just can't help it, right? It's like a comedy pheromone or something. And we couldn't get through that thing without me absolutely busting up. And after a while, you know, the limb, you know, a couple times is fine. After a while, you got to bite a lip and get through it because, you know, you're costing everybody time. Remember, film is money. It's not digital back then, you know? Yes. It was like, I remember being on the set of Bad News Bears. And there's like, I don't know, I think there were eight or 10 kids that were the, the principals. We ran out of film because the kids took 20, 30, 40 takes to get through a scene without screwing it up somehow. And I remember being, it was five o'clock on a Friday and we were working late because again, you couldn't get it done. And they're like, okay, fine. We're out of film. Call it. Deal with it Monday. You know, that happens. And that's all money. And when you can't use it, that's wasted money. Yeah. Now, with WKRP, and you're going to have to go back and listen to like our early episodes, they shot on videotape. So you weren't, you weren't costing them film huh. dollars, you, but you know, it's still, know that. yeah, they shot on videotape because of the music licensing rights. It's a whole big deal, but uh, uh. to get, get the cheaper licensing, they shot on video instead of film. So you, so you weren't costing huh. them that, but still, you know, it's just time. Huh. Well, good to know. I feel, I feel better. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Now we do something in our show because of Richard Sanders dedication to the whole bandage gag. He wears one in yeah. every single yeah. episode yeah, yeah. and we do yeah, a yeah. feature. We do a feature called the Les Nessman bandage report each episode of our podcast. <laughs> so you have got to give us the lowdown on your contribution right. to Richard Sanders bandage placement. Okay. This is how I remember it. Obviously, I remembered the wrong guy just a minute ago. So I will say, to the best of my knowledge and memory, um, <laughs> we were uh, we were on the set. So it was Wednesday, probably. And, you know, everybody's in wardrobe and we're doing our thing, making sure we're blocking out. And I remember him and Herb were having a conversation. Where, where should it hurt this week? And I'm like, how about your ear? And so he put that little bitty bandage on his earlobe and he goes, well, it's not really, I, as I recall, he was like, it's kind of small. And I'm like, very noticeable. Don't worry about it. Cause you know, <laughs> when it zoom in on your face, it's right there. You know what I mean? So I, he did it. And that, that is the truth as I recall. 
That's cool. Well, we've found a couple of places where eventually he was kind of questioning whether or not he should have started this because he was having trouble finding. At one point, he said they, <laughs> they were hoping they did more European scripts where he could take his shirt off so he could have more places <laughs> for the bandage. You know. <laughs> well, he's, uh, you know, he was. He's used every finger and he's used both yeah. thumbs. He had one in the middle of his bald spot. On top of his head. On top of his head. In the middle of his bald spot. One episode, he turned around and there it was. <laughs> I will tell you, it's my opinion that he got a bigger laugh out of doing it and watching people's reaction than the people laughing from the joke did. He enjoyed that shtick. He really did. Yeah. yeah. He he seems like a very interesting, unique guy with a huge performance background he was such a consummate actor uh he had a lot of stage training and i had no idea and i never had any idea because there was no internet um i remember i did a series called grandpa goes to washington with jack albertson i knew who he was because you know charlie and the chocolate factory and i had seen different movies that he was in but Teresa wright was a co-star one one episode i had no idea she was an oscar winner my mother had to pull me to the side and be like don't go. You need to be nicer at her. She's a winner of the Oscar. And I'm like, Whoa, damn. Really? I had no idea. <laughs> Trisha Neal. In, Trisha in Neal press, re- in press releases, that's always in, in a parenthesis behind an actor's name, you know, yeah. Oscar, Oscar winner, winner, Oscar yeah, nominated, yeah. Oscar right. nominated. That's always on there. Yeah. Uh, right. the, uh now, now actually I got to tell you, you mentioned Jack Albertson and, and grandpa goes to Washington. We have a couple of folks who are fans of the podcast who are huge, huge WKRP fans. Uh, we, we use the G word sometimes. They're geeks. We're all geeks. But uh, these guys, <laughs> these guys, I, I occasionally check with them on things. Like before we talked to Tom Chihawk, I sent a couple of them. I said, hey, what would you want to ask Tom if you had a chance? Well, I sent one of uh-huh. them. Your, I said, hey, we're talking to Sparky Marcus from Young Master Carlson. You got anything we want to ask? And this one came back, a guy in Canada, actually, who did a blog of every episode and he said i've always wondered there was a one season jack albertson vehicle called grandpa goes to washington he was in that Mm -hmm. and i said and i Mm -hmm. i I wrote him back i said you know he had a pretty shitty life as a child actor we're probably going to restrict it to krp and and he came back he he went oh okay that's fine that's fine yeah don't talk about jack albertson (laughs) (laughs) well actually i'm trying to think that show the guy larry linville was a nice guy uh, he was good to me. Sue Ann Langdon, who played my mom, was very nice to me. As I recall, the the crew was very nice. Um, Jack was wonderful. Uh, he was such a gentleman. And the, what killed us, the, there was a girl who played my sister. She was a bit of a princess, and I don't remember. And Michelle Tobin, I think, was her name. I don't know if she ever did anything else. I don't know anything. She just didn't want to be around me, I think, because I was a Nikki boy or whatever. I don't really care. <laughs> um, what I recall about that is... It was a, it was a nice set. We got killed by the World Series. They put it up against the World Series that year, and they pulled it after seven episodes. Yeah, yeah. that was Fred Silverman's new thing. I'm gonna take this show. It's gonna be great. So you know, everybody's rubbing their hands together, going, "Sweet, we're gonna New Hill Street Blues or something, right?" Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. not what happened. Yeah, we got killed in programming. Programming is everything. You know, if you're not in a good time slot, you die. Yeah, that's that's something we're we're watching. We're kind of tracking with WKRP. We're into the the section right now of their life where they were behind Mash, and those are the highest rated episodes. And everybody uh, knows right. those episodes because they saw them when they were on originally. Well, then into the second season, they start moving them around, and they keep changing their time spot, and that's when all yeah. the ratings fell off. You know, and they lost a lot of that. But yeah, that you're you're and right. obviously 
spot. And obviously that's different now because you can DVR anything you want in the middle of the night. Yeah. And time slots are less of an issue. But at the time, that is what kept you alive was a good time slot. When they moved your time slot, oh, you're Thursday at 7.30, which was the best time slot in Hollywood, I think, for a period of time, 7 and 7.30. Um, When you get moved to, you know, Tuesday at 9, you're hosed. Yeah, you're, you're, it, it, you might as well be canceled because your audience yeah. that has been with you now for weeks, they're not going to go searching. They're not going to find it. They're going to miss it. And, yeah. and they might even want yeah. to find it, but they're just not going to think of it. And, and I agree with that. Talk about shooting hoops with Gordon Jump. Give us the whole lowdown oh, on that. Okay. So, you know, I, in every <laughs> every dressing room I ever had, I had that stupid orange hoop with the Nerf basketball. Because, you know, <laughs> there was no video games. There was, you know, they had things called books that I tried to read all the time. But, you know, I needed to cut loose. So in my in any dressing room I ever had on any show I ever on, I had that stupid ball thing. So they put it on the back of the door in the on the set. And I'm like, sweet. So I start playing with it. And um, they decided to work it into the show. Okay, fine. Maybe it was already, probably already in the show. What do I know? Everything that goes on is planned, right? So all week long, we're practicing. We throw the ball up. Neither of them are hitting it. Neither of them are hitting it. The day we filmed it, we hit it. We both got it in the hoop on the try. True story. Uh, we'll take that to my grave. Um, absolutely nailed it. And the guy who drove the remote control car all week long, you know, he's crashing here, crashing Tom, there. Wasn't it Tom Chihuk? The the day we filmed it, he nailed it. It went everywhere it was supposed to go when it was supposed to go there. It was well, awesome. We've been talking to Tom for the last couple of weeks. We did a couple of different Zoom sessions with him. And, and, and Tom Tom was always fun because, you know, he was there the entire first season. He wrote three of the episodes, but he was there for every single one of them. So mm-hmm. we'd, be, we'd be talking about something. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he'd go, oh, did you do such and such? Or have you seen such and such? Or I remember so-and-so. And for some reason, I don't know what got him on it, but he said, have you done the one yet with the radio control car? And I said, no, I said, no, I think that's the one with Art Jr. And he goes, I drove that car. And he said, I remember crashing that thing all week long. And I think I finally got it right for the tape. (laughs) He did. He he did. He absolutely nailed it. I loved it. How much interaction did you have with guys like that? Like the the story editors, the writers? I just don't recall. I just don't recall. Pretty much just through the director, probably. Yeah, it was. And I'll tell you, not that he's not, sounds like a great guy. Those people generally, they had a, a child whisperer, essentially. They, had, they, they used to go through a child interpreter at some point. Someone was a designated child handler. And uh, when they wanted the kid to do something, other than the director when you're on the set, if they wanted something communicated, it was generally something like the second assistant director trainee from the DGA that got the, the, uh, the express privilege of having to you know, speak child. Um, the, uh, usually uh, I don't, I don't recall uh, one time, maybe I don't recall ever being contacted by even on the set or on phone or anything by anybody like that. Now we've talked about a few of the performers that you interacted with. Um, mm-hmm. if we throw some names out at you, could you just give us kind of impressions of them? Like your, I'll do my your, best. Your memory. So Lonnie Anderson. Wonderful lady, uh, 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 gentle, gentle woman among women. I mean, she's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So Herb, Frank Bonner, you, uh, and you had that one scene with him. He was humming anchors away the, the Navy. Hymn. <laughs> yeah. And, uh-huh. and Herb, uh, actually Frank Bonner is a former Navy man. 
Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's a little detail we're going to throw in the podcast there. He is a former uh-huh. Navy man, and he was humming that. And I think it's because you, you've got the Army uniform on. He was trying right, to insert yeah. a little bit of Navy in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame him, right? Um, what I remember about him is that the scene we did with him and Les about your obtuse, your uh, adult-minded. adult-minded. Yeah, adult-minded. Yes. Uh, we had a really good time rehearsing that. Uh, he, they were, they were, both of those guys are very fun to work with. I don't recall seeing him a lot outside of the set, but that doesn't mean we didn't interact here and there. I just don't recall. Tim Reed, Venus. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I don't recall seeing him much outside of the set either, but he was very nice to me. And I thought we had some great chemistry and obviously that relatively sensitive interaction. Um, I thought we did it. I, I don't know if you can say it was respectful as it could be at the time. I don't know, but you know, I thought we did really well and, uh, uh, he was fun to work with. He had a great sense of humor. I love that. Both Don and I do some stage stuff locally, just community theater kind of thing. And I was the prosecuting attorney in To Kill a Mockingbird and the guy playing... Whoa. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I've got to get right in his face and shout, "Boy, isn't that right, boy?" You know, and I'm t- all yeah, these horrible yeah. things. And the guy's a good friend of ours that was playing the character. And one night after us, you know, we're doing a walkthrough, and afterwards I said, "Listen, <laughs> I got to tell you, I feel horrible having to say those things." And he just kind of laughed. He goes, "Oh no, no." He said, "You're doing a great job. Let it fly. Let it fly." And you know, it yeah, was all yeah. it was all about the performance, and he understood. There's nothing personal there. You know, it's it's about the show, right? And but it, yeah, it's, it's tough to put those personal feelings aside, mm-hmm. dude. I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. I mean, huge. And one of my favorite movies is uh oh, not Ungrateful Aid. It's the one oh, Django Unchained. Oh, yeah. I think that is an absolutely Fox? epic oh, movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I read an article about how Leonardo DiCaprio and Jamie Foxx and Samuel L. Jackson had that conversation. And he's like, I can't do it. This isn't me. I can't do it. And they're like, just like you said, let it fly. This is a period piece. We know what we're into. Let's go. We want the authenticity. We want the rawness. We want to chap. We need to chap your ass. Let's do it, you know? And the way that I could watch that movie over and over and over and over. I love that thing. Same thing with uh, Hateful Eight. Um, my in-laws, it's funny because I'll, I'll be like, hey, let's watch Jingle and Chain. And my, my mother-in-law's like, uh, no. It's not that they can't handle the subject matter. It's the F-bombs. They can't stand the F-bombs. Yeah. And for me, that is what makes it real is making you uncomfortable as a as a viewer of that and understanding the mentality and the, the, the viciousness of the time. Well, you know, I've only watched Hateful Eight one time, and I remember oh. being so on edge through the entire thing. It's like I was white-knuckling the yeah. arms of the chair because that is yeah. such a tense bottle drama. It is amazing. I know. Uh, the level know. he gets out of that, but oh, it's brutal. It's brutal and bloody it's and violent brutal. and horrible, but man. And you just don't know who's who and what's what, and then he lied about this, but that's the guy who drank the poison. Yeah. I, I totally get it. Uh, that had me, I was going to the very end. Hey, can you, yeah. can you give us just a couple of lines about Richard Sanders? I know we've <laughs> talked about him quite a bit, but just a couple of your, your impressions of him as a, as an actor, as a guy. Um, again, you know, I was very sensitive about how I was treated on the set. Not that I was being, I don't know, not that I was looking for people to be mean to me so that I can go run and hide or whatever. I just basically, I responded in kind was what I got to where where I felt comfortable. If uh, an adult performer didn't want to talk to me, I wasn't going to go start a conversation. What I remember about him is that he treated me like a fellow actor. He did not treat me like 
set dressing or an unnecessary part because they say you don't want to work with animals and kids, and it's true. Um, but what I remember from him is that he had no problem striking the conversation with me like I was just another actor, just doing my thing. I was on the clock too, you know? That's cool. So, yeah, that uh, that W.C. Fields quote, you've probably heard that one a million times. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Don't worry I with have. kids. Are... Nobody ever hears the, the next line of that. It's not because they're hard to work with. It's because they'll steal the show from steal you every show. time. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I'm like, it's because they steal the show. Yeah. But it's true. And it's you're right. And it's not because of that. It's because, yeah, you, um, the who Jackie Cooper, you could put him in anything when he was, you know, eight years old. He'd steal a movie. Yeah. Yeah. He gets all the attention. And now that that actor yep. that's been working for 40 years is just yeah, in the background, you know, I know. <laughs> I'm his vehicle. How did that happen? Yeah. Hey, so uh, I think we kind of know the answer to this, but the, do you keep in touch with anybody from the show? Any of the cast or crew? No. And it's not because I don't want to, or was trying to be standoffish. It was just, that was not the culture of the time. And, you know, there was no Facebook, there was no internet. Or, you know, if someone wanted to look me up, they had to call Screen Actors Guild. And there was a period of time that not only, I mean, I kept pretty current with SAG, but there were a period of time where I moved around a lot. You know, my ex-wife was in school and we moved here and there and I would leave a job for a dollar an hour and end up moving towns or whatever. So I think there's just, there's a period of time where it's just like, you know, uh, there's kind of pre-Facebook and post-Facebook. Since Facebook, I have found a handful of people that I worked with back in the day and we are Facebook friends. I've caught up with them. I don't know if you know who. I don't know if you know who Katie Kurtzman is. She was very, she was in Dynasty, very popular young actress back in the day. Lucy Dreyer, who was in everything back in the day. Um, I was in Los Angeles with my wife and child. We caught up for dinner with those two, and it was great. It, you know, it was like, hey, I remember doing this obscure thing back in 1973. What was it? And Lucy's got like this, I don't know, photographic memory. And he was like, we were doing this commercial, and it was for toothpaste, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> when we left, they gave us all this toothpaste in a cup. And I'm like, wow, I, that's where the cup came from, right? Um, I had no idea where that thing, you know, it's part of my memory, but it's like, where did this come from? Um, so you know, I, I do. I get the feeling it's kind of like cops or soldiers, you know, it, after you've been through something like, you know, what you were, what you went through with your early years, it, it's good mm -hmm. to come run into other people who have shared similar experiences and be able to talk to them and have a little bit of yeah, that, that ability to kind of, kind of work through it in the aftermath. The first time I, I got in touch with Katie Kurtzman, I think I called her. We were on the phone for an hour and I remember getting off the phone and posting something on Facebook about all these, it's like thinking you're crazy for all these years and then talking to somebody and realizing that you're okay. And that's what it was like talking to her. It was like, I it grounded a lot of the ways that I felt a lot of the experiences that I had and it validated a lot of the stuff that I, you know, you never know, you know, I got this complaint since I was a kid and, I don't know. Was it, did it really come down like that? Was it really like that? And you talk to somebody who was in the same boat as you and they're like, yeah, that really happened. That's how we were treated. That's how they treated us. That's what happened. And so it was like, it was a very validating experience to talk to somebody who's been through it. Better, probably better than therapy doing something like that, being able to just kind of <laughs> share, share war stories. Huh? Way, way cheaper. How does that sound? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> a lot of laughs involved. <laughs> well, uh, Marcus, I, I tell you, we've pretty much exhausted, I think, our our list of questions that we wanted to talk to you about, and we've hey, monopolized cool. you for an hour here now. Do you have ah. anything else you'd want us? You'd, you'd want uh, one one that we had on here, um, and I don't yeah, know advice. The, the, yeah, yeah. You want to go and ask? Well, if you were asked what? to give advice to young actors or to their parents, what what advice would you oh. give? Oh, okay. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. When my son was about, 
one of the things that set me apart from other kids my age is I could read at a very young age. My older brother had a learning disability of some sort. I don't know what it was. He had trouble reading. So when I, he was about 10 and I was about three, um, we had a reading tutor at the house. And so I was able to read way before kindergarten. I, I could read a newspaper. Okay. Um, I could read the script. You know, they, when you go to an interview and they hand you your sides and you're like, okay, go out with your mom and work on this. I'm like, no, I got it. We can do this. <laughs> and they're like, oh, right. I know. So that set me apart a little bit. Um, so when my son started turning, you know, four five, six years old, my mom kept going, you need to move out of here. Cause I live in BFE, California. You need to move back to Los Angeles. You need to put him in the movies. I'm like, hell no, I'm not going to put him in the movies. She goes, if you don't, he will hate you forever. So that really sat with me for a while, right? So I had a chance to chew on that a lot over the years. And my brother called me one time and said, you know, hey, my son wants some advice about being an actor. I'm like, I'm not talking to him. And my only advice is stay in school because <laughs> you need something to fall back on when it all blows up in your face, okay? But, I, you know, my, my feeling is this. There are people that have that innate drive wired in them that they want to be a performer. And I did not have that. I had the innate drive to make my parents happy. So unless you can determine whether that child, because I know they're born, I know they are, they're out there and they do wonderful jobs on the screen. I mean, if you really look at the movies of the seventies, there weren't a lot of quality child actors. They've gotten much better over the last 20 years. Um, uh, I would say, unless you really have that child that really has that burn, you know, community theater, get out there, get some exposure, make sure it's really, really what you want to do because it is a commitment. And I'm not sure that anybody who is not an adult is going to be able to make the commitment it takes to be successful. And the other thing as a child, you get blackballed a bit between going from child actor to adult actor because they don't want cute little Sparky. They want edgy little Sparky who's nasty. And you know, that name Sparky just doesn't really work anyway. So let's change it. So it's like you almost have to have a completely different persona as an adult than you did as a child. And unwiring your brain from the the money <laughs> the money performance, you know, the, what you're used to getting paid for is a very difficult thing. So my advice is for a child who wants to do it, you need to have very supportive parents. You need to have an attorney. Uh, you need to keep your parents out of your management. You need to have a hired manager who's on the payroll who does what they do because they have your best interests at heart, but it isn't your parents who are where the guilt part comes in so much. Wow. Yeah. You know, Edie McClurg. She the, played Herb's wife. She was Herb's wife. She was on three episodes oh. of KRP, but she's been in everything. Uh, you probably, if you heard her voice, you'd recognize she's got a very unique voice. But we do, we do background on all the performers that come up on the show, all the, all the people that are on, you know, the, the one episode mm -hmm. or two episode people. Edie started performing at five years old in Kansas City in a dance troupe. And they said, you <laughs> couldn't keep her off a stage. You you had yeah. to shoo her away from the stages. And that's all she's ever done. It's all she's ever wanted to do. And I think that's what you're talking about. She had that. It was already there. Nobody instilled it right. in her. Nobody made her do it. She wanted yeah. to do it. Yeah. Not every kid is like that. One. Yeah, like, but it's, it's a rare Russell. thing. Kurt Russell, he had you it. Got it. Yeah, I bet. You know, I remember those movies from when he was a kid. Yeah. How many people are going to have that career when you think about mm -hmm. it? Yeah, that started when rare. they were five and now he's 65. Yeah. I mean, he's been on it for six decades mm -hmm. and there's just not that many. And, you know, determining whether you're wired to be that way. And what if it changes in a year? 
what if you're used to making money and all of a sudden the kid goes, you know what? I just want to be a kid and go back to school and be in scouts and join Little League and go on field trips because that's the stuff you lose. Okay. You don't get to be in Boy Scouts and uh, Little League and go on field trips because your after school time is going on interviews every day, five days a week. And if it isn't, you need a new agent because you're supposed to be going on five interview days a day, five days a week. You know what I mean? So you have to be committed. And, you know, I'll give it to my mom to a degree because she never complained, you know, about all, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, going to interviews after, after work not, or after school, not getting home till seven o'clock. My dad was a very traditional father. He wanted dinner on the table. My mom took care of that too. Um, she didn't complain about that. On the flip side, I can't tell you how many times I went to work sick. I went to work puking. I went to work with cold. I went to work when I, when I couldn't speak and I'm trying to arrive. My voice was bad and I had to, you know, try to protect that. Try to tell a seven year old, okay, you've got laryngitis. Don't talk. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it doesn't work that well. You know what I mean? Especially, especially when so, your job is, I got to go talk. That's what I got to go do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm not surprised that more people don't die from chloroseptic poisoning. You know, that spray stuff you put on your throat. <laughs> yes, and yes. Because that stuff is phenol alcohol. You can go... Um, you can go septic on that stuff really quickly. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't realize, you know, I, I'd go do cartoon voices with a bottle of core septic, you know, just eh, eh, between every, oh. you know, single, uh, single line. Um, but that is the commitment that it takes. And I, I believe me, I look at the shows, I watch the Oscars, I get my screeners from the Screen Actors Guild, and I watch these movies. I'm like, God, I wish I could do stuff like that. You don't know how many hundreds, thousands of interviews that kid went through, how many heartbreaks, how shitty he was treated at, at work, how shitty he was treated at school, how shitty, you know, other parents don't want their kid around him because he's probably on drugs. Um, it takes a long time to yeah. get to that moment of glory where everyone goes, that's who I want to be. Got to kiss a lot of frogs. You know way, what I mean? Way too many dues to pay. <laughs> if that's the thing. Yeah. It's the dues. That's exactly right. I call it tuition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you pay a lot of tuition. I, that's, that's, I've called it that since I was a young man. You know, how do you explain it all? Well, it's all about tuition, man. You pay enough, you you get where you want to be. But when you stop paying, you're done. Yeah, you're you're booted immediately, boy. Yep. That's a rough system to be in at 11 years old. That is a rough place. Yeah. To be in. yeah, yeah. And then you know, one day the phone stops ringing, and I, when I was about 14, I told my parents, you know, this is just not what I want to do, and they're like, tough. We have the power. We're the parent, and I bought that right. Like, somehow they didn't, I didn't realize the child protective services existed. And I remember I turned 18 halfway through my senior year and the week before my birthday, I had this big drop down, you know, drag out argument with my parents. And I'm like, you don't owe me after next week, after next week, we're done. I go, what do you want me to do? You want me to pay rent in the house I paid partially for? What do you want me to do? Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. I'm just done. Don't even, I'm I'm a tenant at that point. And we spent the next six months being very quiet. The day after I graduated from high school, I left home. I went, I got a card in the mail. I went to the University of Oregon. I got a card in the mail that said, hey, summer session, come and see what college is all about. Take summer session. And I remember looking at it going, huh, maybe that's something I want to do. My mom goes, I dare you. So the day after I graduated from high school, I drove to Eugene and started classes the following Monday. Cool. That was that. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's the She thought she had more of a hold on you than she did, didn't she? She kind of oh, thought trust me. She, you were, when it she came had to plenty, really leaving, you wouldn't do it. She had plenty of a hold on me. Trust me. You know, there was a um, lot of guilt involved, you know, right. and let me put it this way. I had to get kicked out of a few good colleges before I finally figured out what I needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> it might, my, my two years at Oregon were not stellar. I'll say that, 
And, you know, I went to, <laughs> lived up there for a little while. And then I wound up getting that job in physical therapy. And then I went to Cal State LA and I worked five days a week and went to school two days a week from uh, eight in the morning till 10 at night, twice a week. So once I figured out what I wanted to do, I had no problem applying myself. My issue is I have to subjugate to myself myself to the thing that I believe in. And I never believed in being an actor. That was not my gig. That was my parents' gig. Do you mm-hmm. do you think though that the work ethic and the, the I mean you were you were working all the time and and had and to get out there and do it. Do you think that was a positive thing to come out of that that influenced you when you did find the thing? Yeah, contributed to um, that when you was, did find the thing you wanted I, that drove you. That that was how I was wired. Some people are wired to be a performer. I was wired to be a worker. I'm a much better worker than I'm a student. You know, I'm much more learn on the job and be successful than I am. Study this theory and then go apply it. Um, I I work. That's what I do. Yeah, but then but then finding that work though that inspires you. I mean, you found the work and, now well, and get you out of bed every day. Then that's true. And well, I, I I understand your question. I guess I don't know if I would have found something else. You know, I just would have. I, I just feel like I would have found something. The lucky part of me is I found it so young. And mm-hmm. my mom's. Um, a friend of my mother was doing my mom a favor by getting me that job. And I made, I went from, I was <laughs> my last year in Eugene, when I was going up there, I wasn't going to school. I was selling cars <laughs> and I was making a fortune selling cars. It was the easiest job. It was like taking my candy from a baby. <laughs> and I went from making five grand a month to making $4 an hour and having to wipe butts in the process. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And it was like, wow, this is a chain of a change in fortune, but it actually <laughs> worked out to be the, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I figured I'd just kill time, but I really found out where I belonged. Fell in love with it. That's great. Well, it's great. You've got a, you've got a uh, happy ending to your, or not an ending, but a, a happy yeah. second chapter to your story. Hey, I do, I I'd do like think to think that. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Oh, I said, I'd like to think in the next five or six years, I get to retire. And then I'll, we'll never think upon it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did think of one more. Um, the woman that played grandma, Carol. <gasps> Bruce, oh, yeah. She was yeah. mama. Very intimidating yeah. uh, character. And how, I know. And that's not who she is. Remember from her? <laughs> well, actually, yeah. they refer to you in WKRP as the, as the omen. Howard Hesman. Yes, Howard Hesman calls yeah. you the omen. <laughs> okay. I forgot about that. Good call. All right. You, I forgot about that. The scene when you are staring eye to eye with Mr. Carlson. That yeah, I just the way you don't take your eyes off of him and you're like staring a hole through his head. And I think Alan <laughs> um, even mentioned you could have played that kid in the omen. Yeah, yeah, you could have, man. You should have, you should have gotten that. You should have been Damien, dude. You could have done it. Um, oh, I was channeling my mother, trust me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but all I gotta do is, you know, look intense. Oh, there you go. I got that. I got down. You know? <laughs> but your um, impressions. Of I remember her. I remember her being very cool. And I remember. I don't think she had that mink stole thing on until the right, like our last dress rehearsal. And I remember thinking, "What the hell is that? I had never seen anything <laughs> like that." I'm like, "Is that what I think it is?" I mean, everybody talks about how great mink is, but you're wearing a rat around your neck. I mean, what is that about? <laughs> But it, it totally played into the character. I thought it was perfect for the character. Um, I remember her as being, I, I remember her as being very cool. No problems. We got along great. That's what I recall. 
Yeah, right. she she seems awesome. And we we tracked her career. She first shows up in Mama's Review, which is like episode eight or something like that. Nine. At, or nine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and she replaced <laughs> there was a mama in the pilot who was played by a uh-huh. different woman. And Carol Bruce replaced her for this Mama's Review episode. And we did like a bio on her. And she sounds just like the coolest person in the world. I mean, she she had a yeah. musical written for her back in the 40s by Irving Berlin. Wow. She's something wow. else. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's had an amazing career. She sang. You remember how Marilyn sang for JFK at his birthday party? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Carol Bruce sang for FDR at his birthday party in 1941. So she was as big damned. as Marilyn, you know, 20 years earlier. She was, you know, she, I wish I, I wish I, I'm a, I love history. You know, I'm a big history buff. I wish I had known that stuff because it would have added so much more color in my experience instead of having it be rather dry and not knowing who it was. You know, my wife loves to play the six degrees game whenever, like, I, I figured out how I'm like, <laughs> oh, what did I figure out? I'm like two degrees. connected everybody? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I absolutely am. And I wish, you know, I had remembered, I got Jack Warden got me to everybody in, um, in, uh, from here to eternity, one of my favorite movies of all time. And oh, yeah. I worked with Jack Warden for two seasons. I had no idea. He was even from here eternity. I had no idea. And then one day I'm watching, I'm like, son of a bitch, that's Jack Warden on there. And then Jen, <laughs> my wife's name is Jennifer. And she's like, dude, that brings you to all these people, Frank Sinatra, da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, oh, I know. So she goes, we, one day when we retire, we're going to have an entire wall that has actors' names on it and the whole string thing of who's where and how and the just all the yarn connecting it. you to everybody. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I worked with Kevin McClure and freaky Friday and Kevin McClure worked on for Apollo 13 with Kevin Bacon. So I'm one degree. You're from Kevin connected Bacon. To Kevin you are Bacon. one. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, And I could figure it out. I figured out how it was like one degree of star Wars too. It's like, I went through this whole thing in my head. It was like, okay, this is, this, this is got it. Oh, and my wife will go, um, I got it in two steps. I'm like, what? So that's what I'm like, oh, son of a bitch, you did it, yeah. So we love that game. I love that you play six degrees with yourself, on yourself. How do you can get to somebody I else? I know. I know, I know. And the thing is, you know, my son has only has a really limited idea. I mean, he understands that I worked. He knows I was in stuff. He's seen some of the stuff. Um, my parents, when my parents would watch him when I was, uh, when he was younger, insisted that I'm showing things against my wishes. Um, so he has a clue, but even he's never grilled me about, he's never given me a million questions about what was it like? Why are you, why are you the way you are? You know, <laughs> none of that's, yeah, none of that's, you know, the biggest hang up I've had since having a child and my wife, she grew up in Pennsylvania. Her parents and her grandparents had a cabin on the, on the Delaware river. She was making mud pies, you know, doing the whole thing. I'm afraid to get dirty. When I got dirty, when I was a kid, I got in trouble. So it's like, if I had a dirt stain on the knee of my jeans or something, that was a problem. So when my son was young, we, we only used to leave our travel trailer up at this campground up in the mountains around here. And he would come back to the trailer all dirty. I'm like, oh my God, he can't come in here. He's filthy. And my wife's looking at me going, you need to relax. We have a shower. He's going to be fine. And and and, <laughs> and he's like, a boy. He's he's a boy. And he's That's a what boy. happens. I know. That's what happens. Kids are washable. Yeah, I know. How, well, how I was I, uh, 19, 19. 19. He's in college. Yeah, he's going to Oregon Institute of Technology studying cybersecurity. Uh, he's way oh. smarter than me. Cool. And he takes after his mother. My my wife's a brilliant, brilliant woman. <laughs> well, now she I, is, I, and she's. And she's very patient, obviously. (laughs) I 
I did want to mention to you, if you'd like to get all the history and background and information about all these, uh, these people, there's a podcast called WKRP cast <laughs> that goes through How do you know? the background of all those people. You you know? check it out. <laughs> I've heard about that. I might have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did want to let you know, okay, so I'm going to take what we've done here today and I go through and I pull out just great comments, great lines, you know, things that, that, that okay. sound awesome. And then I write little intro pieces. And as we do the show, we'll say, and we talked to Marcus Solo, who, you know, Sparky Carlson, uh, and, and he had this to say, and then, and then we'll play a little clip from what we just, what we just did. Okay. So when I get okay. that all put together, I will send you a link. So you can preview okay. that before it's ever published. And if there's anything in there that you decide, nah, I'd rather not have that in a podcast, or I'd rather not have that out there. Just feel free, you know, let me know. Say, hey, you know, that one line where I say such and such, maybe take that out. Uh, that's fine. You know, yeah. and, and we'll give you that chance to preview it. So because we, we did that with Tom. That. There were a couple of things Tom said that he thought better of later. He thought, you know, those people are still alive. Maybe I don't want to be saying that. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's great. Well, um, let me tell you one quick story about that. And I do sincerely appreciate that's very kind of you. So there is a guy who has a Facebook page called Yellow Waxy Buildup or Waxy Yellow Buildup. And basically this guy's a PhD who did his whole PhD uh, dissertation on um, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman and Norman Lear and the world that he created basically through his, his uh, TV shows. And, you know, he's been, he reached out to me one time. We had a very similar conversation to this. He actually reconnected me with a friend from the show that now we're, I mean, we're like tight now. Um, he wanted to put a clip on the Facebook page of a scene I did with Dabney Coleman, who played my father, where I got spanked. So uh, I immediately had this flood of memories and I'm like, whoa. So I watched the clip because he sent it to me and I, re I had this total flashback. When we rehearsed that scene, he only hit me on the butt lightly. When we filmed it, he went ballistic on my ass, right? And watching little, you know, eight-year-old me get spanked, you know, I think it was only a half a dozen shots, but looking at my reaction, I knew, I remembered how much it hurt. And I was like, dude, I'm all down for your thing, but I'm just not comfortable with that one. And he was cool about it and he didn't put it on. So I appreciate the right of first refusal when it comes to that. Oh, I sure. can't think of anything you would come up with that'll make me do that, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, and, Whatever, and, and, you know. and maybe, and you know, and, and as possible, hearing it in a different context, you know, hearing us talking about the yeah. episode and then your voice comes up, you might go, oh, boy, I'm not real happy with that. Then that's fine. You know, just yeah. let us know. Okay. We're, we're, we're more happy because we will. want this. We want this to be positive. We want this going out. You know, this is for everybody. This is yeah. historical documentation about the show, which we found some cool stuff that nobody ever knew before, which has been fun. Um, but we don't <laughs> want We don't want anybody ever coming away from this going, boy, those guys are jerks. They were doing that, you know. So so yeah. we're, we're really wanting everybody that's contributing and everybody's being a part of it to to be positive about it and happy about it and it, right uh, tom, tom yeah. had a blast with his and actually tom told some great stories his wife was pregnant with their second kid that entire uh shooting season for the entire nine months of the shooting oh. season and the day oh, wow. after the day after the taping of the last show he said he remembers dancing with stella stevens at the rap party and the next day he went to the birth of his child he said they whisked me away from the rap party to take me to the hospital and he was born the next morning and he said he oh, said wow. that he shared the uh podcast with his son so he could hear it he said that's the story about you, know you getting born you know <laughs> the coolest thing that I remember about that show had nothing to do with the taping of the show. It had to do with whatever it was two or three years later 
when I got invited to the rap party, when it was wrapping as a series and they knew it was not going to be renewed, my agent called my mom and said, you know, Sparky's been invited to the rap party. We didn't go for whatever reason. I mean, I was only, you know, 13, maybe something like that, 14. Um, but I can't tell you what an honor it is to be a one episode actor on an extremely popular series and being remembered enough positively to be invited to the rap party. That was, uh, that was a great honor for me. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and you know, that, that right there, that little story sounds emblematic uh, of just everything else that went on with WKRP. And I think a lot of yeah. that was Hugh, was Hugh Wilson. Now, I, oh, 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 did you interact what? with Hugh Wilson? I don't remember. I don't, I can't pick him out of a lineup. I just don't remember. Now I can tell you this. If it, if it followed along every other trend, he was definitely at the interviews. Um, and generally you don't get a part like that only on one interview. It probably took a couple. I don't recall going to them, but they had to have happened and there had to be more than one. Um, you know, there was a thousand kids in Hollywood that looked like me. Um, and, uh, you know, I can tell you that the, the casting directors were there and the producer and the director, whoever the director of the episode was going to be, that's who's them. That's who's there. Well, and we have heard, I mean, uh, Hugh did not have co-producers, ADs. He did not have the raft of assistants that most show creators mm-hmm. have around them. He did a lot of that stuff on his own. Uh, Tom said, what are the know, shows did he do? Well, yeah, he, his first show running gig was the Tony Randall show, which was one season. Oh, that was it. Love that show. Yeah. I you, love that show. Though. Really? You knew that show? It was one season yeah. of Tony Randall. He was a judge yeah. and actually yeah, Tom, I thought he was hysterical. Well, Tom Chihawk wrote his very first ever produced episode for that, and so did uh, Bill Dial, who was a friend of Hughes, who went on to WKRP. So that was that was really Hughes' first show running gig. And when huh. he got hired at Mary Tyler Moore, he said one of the big things that he felt, and he was coming out of an advertising agency in Atlanta, is where he started. And he said, I felt like when I got hired at MTM, somebody had propped the door open to Hollywood and I had to hold it open and let some friends come in behind me. And one of those friends <laughs> was, was Bill Dial, who never had any experience as a, as a TV writer, but suddenly now he's a story editor and writer on WKRP. And we're asking Tom, he's going, oh yeah, they were drinking buddies from Atlanta. Of course he got that job. You know? <laughs> and, and that's just how, that's just how Hugh did it. You know, he put people close yeah. to him that he could trust. And then he worked like a madman all the time. He, he was being consulted on like set building stuff, stuff that a creator would never be involved with, you know? Right. But, right. But he, just right. Had a, he had a hand in everything, uh, you know, had a hand in all of it. So he, he did an amazing yeah. guy. I can only tell you how incredibly positive the vibe was from the minute you set on the step, set onto the stage, out of the stage, the minute you left, it was amazing. And I remember that clearly today as I did back then. And I, I got to think a lot of that's coming from Hugh Wilson. He just had that effect on people. Everybody that we've talked yeah. to that, that did interact with him, they said he was a genius. He was hilarious and just one of the nicest guys you ever wanted to meet. But he never stopped. He was like 12 hours a day. He's working. And, and they said it, yeah. was like, it was like he was driven. This show, this, these episodes, these characters lived in his head. And he just had to get them out. He had to get them out. <laughs> I think but the they, best people are driven that way. Yeah. And, you know, to mention George Lucas, I think about, and, and I'm, I, we could probably talk three or four hours about Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars, yeah. George Lucas fan. Me too. Yeah. One of the things they talked about when they were editing, yeah, I think it was Return of the Jedi. And they, they had some of these group, you know, these scenes in these cities on other planets. 
And they said Lucas would stand in the back of the edit room and he would point at some character that was on the screen for three seconds. And he'd say, oh, you know, he's a blank. And he'd give some name. Yeah, I know. They live on the planet blank and they invented this propulsion system for a drive. And he knows all this backstory. They said it was amazing what, you know, you're seeing maybe 10% of that Star Wars universe that's in his head and the other, the rest of it, he just can't get it out yet. It's just all there, you know? That was the level of nerd I am. That is the level of nerd. Um, I remember uh, Star Wars cards came out. My, my next door neighbor and I were crazy about Star Wars. We had to buy Star Wars cards. And the whole thing, hey, I read somewhere that, you know, Darth Vader's real name is Anakin. And he's like, you know, uh, from Tatooine, just like Luke. And I'm like, no way. So we'd have this whole thing. Well, you know, George Lucas is going to do, you know, three prequels. I'm like, no, he's not. And then it started happening. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, it was like that was me when I was a kid. Oh, that's Boba Fett. And he's a, whatever that is, a Mandalorian, and he's a bounty hunter, and that's comes from a tribe of bounty hunters all over there. The, the part that, when it stopped for me, was the stupid Ewoks. I couldn't stand the you Ewoks. couldn't take the Ewoks, yeah. Ewoks. <laughs> Could not take the Ewoks. I, you know, they took a great movie, like Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and had the Ewoks at the end of it. And I'm like, their stupid yeah. celebratory dance. Yeah, I was like, was oh, much. God, kill me now. Well, but and, still, and, hey, still a fan. Now, do you ever listen to, there's a great movie podcast I listen to, Paul Shear hosts it, called How Did This Get Made? They did Howard the Duck. And they oh, said, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they said after doing Howard the Duck, okay, I'm blaming Lucas for the Ewoks. I think this is an Ewok <laughs> we're looking at here. Howard's an Ewok, and he just didn't get it right yet. But, but yeah, they said, you know, well, you know the, the story was always that the Ewoks <laughs> were forced on him, that he had to do the Ewoks, so they had a, a doll the kids, to sell. yeah. Yeah, so yep, they had, they had the some kids, kind of yeah. an action figure. And and uh, after seeing Howard the Duck, Paul Shear's like, <laughs> I think Lucas came up with those Ewoks on his own. <laughs> um, I, my excuse for that movie is that I would follow Leah Thompson anywhere. Oh, I don't yeah, care where yeah, it is. Even if, yeah. even if it's Howard the Duck, I'm going there. Because <laughs> Leah Thompson, that's why, you know? why you're tuning in back to the future, of course. Yeah, you got to see. Uh, exactly. When my wife and I first started dating, she had she looked like Leah Thompson to me. And I was like, ah, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> all right. All right. So that's one of those lines you don't want us putting in the podcast, right? right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want her to hit me. So, yeah, I don't think she'd appreciate it. <laughs> My, when Jennifer was young, she was a cross between Leah Thompson and Anna Kendrick. Oh, wow. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. And you, and you, did I, mar- you married a woman named Jennifer, right? You don't think this uh, yeah. was influenced at all by WKRP? <sighs> Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. It must have been. It's been subliminally hiding, you know, subliminally hiding in my brain since I was 11. Oh my God. And for the record, just for the record, and I don't care if you put this on, at least I'm saying that now, Bailey was hotter. Sorry. Uh, you know, she's gotten she, yeah, she's we, gotten more votes from you, our listeners. You got than, you got my vote there too, and Don is well aware. Yeah. I've got a huge crush on Bailey, always have. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. If you ever want to go have a good feeling about WKRP. There are two huge Facebook fan pages. People, this it is very present and very current for these people. They are watching the episodes right now. They love the show. They are into wow. the show. And it is, wow. an, oh, it is an ongoing conversation always. Bailey was hotter. You know, it's it's the ginger yeah. and Marianne of our generation. It's the ginger. That's yeah, really it, is. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you a Marianne? Don't you remember that beer commercial? Do you remember that beer commercial? It's like there's two guys and two girls standing around a pool table drinking beer. And, and they the guys are like, who's hotter? And the questions, blank, blank, and blank, yeah, blank. Yeah. Um, 
Ginger was a bimbo. <laughs> uh, Marianne or Jeannie? Okay, yeah. Marianne or Jeannie, that would be a tough one. I don't know which one I'd go on that one. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Bailey, Bailey was a sweetie. She was, uh, and, uh, we, we did some background on Jad and Smithers too, and kind of how she got into, uh, she had a really funny, uh, origin story. She was cutting school when she was 16, riding on the <laughs> back of a motorcycle out on the beach. She was, she's a SoCal girl. She grew up down, down near LA right on. and, and she's yeah. riding, she's riding on the beach on the back of her boyfriend's motorcycle. There happens to be a photographer from Newsweek out there doing a story on the nation's youth. And they snapped this shot of her looking backwards off the back of this motorcycle. And it's just a great shot. It was the cover of the magazine. And she said she's mortified. The one day out of her high school career, she's cutting classes and she winds up on a national magazine. That's awesome. Here, yeah, I thought that kind of black cloud only followed me. <laughs> <laughs> the one day I decide to do something that the FBI shows up. You know, it's like, yeah, 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 exactly. I'm like, I explain this. But but out of that, I mean, she wound up getting modeling gigs and acting gigs, and that was really what launched her career was that, you know, having that shot on that motorcycle. She was totally laid back, and I'm not saying that, and uh, uh, Lonnie Anderson was too. I mean, truthfully, they're both incredibly gorgeous women, and they're both incredibly gorgeous inside too. And I would love to say, you know, uh, Lonnie Anderson was never that superficial, I know I'm hot and, you know, kiss my feet kind of thing. She was never like that. She was totally cool. That's great. That's, that's even great when I met her the first time, even <laughs> when I met her the first time, she was the same way. Cause yeah, I remember thinking she was hot back then, you know, and I was like, what seven Oh no, probably eight or nine. Yeah. And it was like, she used to be my mother. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah, but so, so when Gordon jump said Jennifer's in there, that was really not acting. You're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And you headed on in there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. No, that was not a problem. Like I said, I identified as a boy quite early. Yeah, as a as a heterosexual boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 Marcus, we have we have taken ninety minutes of your Saturday afternoon, and really, really thank yeah. you so much for talking to us. And this is gonna this is gonna add so much to the episode. I posted the other day. I I don't normally do this because Don always tells me I'm gonna jinx it if I do if I post something that it's gonna screw up the interview or whatever. Yeah. But I posted the other day. I said, "Hey, big news! We got," and I put in quotes, "Sparky Marcus." Uh, going to join us for younger young master Carlson. And that one's scheduled to come out on like, uh, I think the first or second of February is when it comes out. Um, and all of a sudden within half an hour, we had like 60 likes and people going, this is great. And yeah, you got to send me a link to your podcast. I got to, okay. or wherever you okay. post that. I got to see that. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'll, I'll send it to you. But oh, also, okay. Just reminded me of something else. I got another question. When you mention the Academy, there is a blast of trumpet horns that are from Patton. Oh yeah. Yeah. From Patton. Yeah. Could I you, remember that. Okay. I've got, this is a, this is like a technical question. And I, you know, I know I, I've been in advertising and marketing for 40 years now. I make TV commercials. I know how soundtracks work on TV and I know how, you know, how they're doing things and adding things in, but you guys react to that. Like you could hear it. Was there some audio on the no. set? You were actually hearing it. No, we were directed to pause and act like we were hearing it. It was in the script. It was in the script. Specifically the trumpet flourish from Patton. And you didn't hear it. It was not played. I'm going to tell you that I'm 90% sure that it was not played. I would, no, knowing like what I know. The audience would miss out on that, you know? That what, so the audience I didn't have any idea it happened, right? Okay, let me say this, okay? I will tell you that we didn't rehearse with it. And if it was played, it was only played when we filmed it. 
Because truthfully, I want to say, God, and I could be wrong. I want to say that what we heard in filming was not what was on the final, the final print, because I remember thinking it was different. That's the I will tell you this. That is the one show I watched when it was released theatrically on TV that I watched live, that I watched uh, as it was broadcast. That is the only thing I've ever stayed up at night to watch myself do on TV. That says a lot. Every about other it. show I've ever that done says an awful lot about show, WKRP. <laughs> I never, you know, any episode of Bad News Bears, never seen it. Uh, any movie, a TV movie or anything else I did, never seen it. My parents drugged me to see, and literally, I'm going to say drug, drugged me to see uh, Freaky Friday when it was released theatrically. And I couldn't get out. I was like, why are you doing this to me? I'm not going to be able to get out of the theater. And sure enough, everybody recognized me. And they're like, oh, you know, everybody was nice. I'm not saying that. I'm a back row kind of guy. I like to watch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't like to be the focus of attention. I like to just be in the back row and go, enjoy, guys. You know, knock yourself out. I don't like that. And my parents never could understand that. And that, other than, than Freaky Friday, um, that episode of WRKB, WKRP is the only thing I've ever watched as it was broadcast. Uh, yeah, it says a lot about the show. But so, so when you when you watched it, then those sounds, you you think maybe yeah. you were hearing something. There there was something there, or you just paused and it was silent, and then they added that. I in. know. I remember the re- the rehearse part. They didn't have it during rehearsal. Well, I the I don't reality think we, of it would be. I don't think we had it when it filmed. Well, if it were there live, they would have to take it out, really. They, they would have to suppress it to add something else in there. So I really didn't figure that they probably played anything you could hear because they don't want to pick that yeah, up on the I microphones. So. Or then right. it's locked That's, It's locked now in your music, in your track instead of in a separate sound effects track, and they can't right. get it out I believe, of your track. You know? I believe that's the case. And okay. I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm 90% sure it didn't, there was no sound. We just reacted. That would make sense. That would make sense. And I, I've wondered that same thing about music, you know, the music that's going on in the studio. Okay. When, when now, I will tell you that when we did an episode of Bad News Bears, there was supposed to be one episode where there was like a singer in a two-part band and I was the piano player, the fake piano player. We had playback, just playback. You were hearing and that so, so you could li- respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We lip synced the song <laughs> and right. there was like, it was supposed to be like a school dance and all these kids are dancing. There's playback while you do it. They got this whole beep, 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 and then the playback starts. So the, obviously the timing is, is set in there for the, for the film. So everything uh, syncs up. But yeah, yeah, anytime there's been music involved, like a dance or whatever, it's part of the, it's part of the um, filming, part of the master show. Right, right. Because then they'll go in and just wholesale cut out all the audio from that scene and add, add back in the, the produced show. Or the is that what they do? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they just take yeah. the whole thing out. Everything you're hearing in the playback is all ripped out, and then they stick the produced song in there, and then you're you're on time with your piano or drums or whatever. But with the right. with the studio, what I've always wondered with Debbie Carapine, what they're saying, they're saying live right there in front of that audience, but they're saying yeah, it over I hear what you're saying. music. Yeah. And that yeah, music I, that would be, be more there. complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The music can't be, be there. So I think it's silent when they're doing that stuff, but boy, the way they react like the song is playing. <laughs> it's amazing. And the thing is, I'd never heard the trumpets from Patton. I'd never seen it at that point. So I was just going with whatever <laughs> I thought was right. <laughs> well, and it was a fairly it it was a like a 75 movie, so it was fairly recent, and people would have gotten right. that reference. That that's the other thing that we found too as we've been going through this. It was very much of the time, and a lot of the episodes reference things that are current movies or current commercials or you know things that are right. going on right then. And now looking at it 40 years later, it's almost like an archaeological dig. It's like, why did they say that? 
Oh, because right. there was this product out at that time and it was very popular and that's what yeah. they were talking about. So finding those things has been fun too, as we, we put this together. I, I bet. I bet. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's time well spent. And I think, you know, I sincerely appreciate what you're doing. I'm sure everybody else is too. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, well, man, thanks again for talking with us. This has been fantastic. Really. Well, like I said it. in the very beginning, I'm always flattered when anybody remembers me and I appreciate that. <laughs> and you no, know, seriously, because, you know, I, I don't have a lot that I'm proud of, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you recognize that. And I, I appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's, it's good stuff. And yeah, that, like I say, there are a lot of other people out there that, uh, big fans as well. So you got, you got a lot of folks out there supporting cool. you. So, all right. Well, Marcus, right. thanks a lot. And take care of yourself. Nice meeting you, Alan and Donna. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Marcus Asolio for taking the time to talk with us. For more about the episode where he appeared, make sure to check out the WKRP cast episode, Young Master Carlson. And thank you for listening to this WKRP cast season extra. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!